welcome back to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. I'm Brian, and I'm glad you can join us as we continue to walk through the book of Matthew. In this episode, we're finishing up the last few verses of chapter 9, and we're diving into chapter 10. If you have missed any of the previous chapters, you can subscribe to the From Hevel to Eternity podcast to check those out. If you want to stay updated on reading plans and my other resources, you can follow the From Hevel to Eternity Facebook group. The book of Matthew is really laser-focused on showing that Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to save God's people from their sins. We saw that chapters 8 and 9 really underlined the authority that Jesus has over all things. We saw him perform healings and miracles. He raised someone from the dead, made the unclean clean, displayed his power over demons and disease. He proclaimed that he could forgive sins and showed that he could overcome death. Along the way, we see patterns emerge with three different groups of people. There is a growing rift between Jesus and the Jewish religious elite of the time, the Pharisees. People who do not like what Jesus is teaching accuse him of blasphemy and basically working for the devil. It is a conflict that will continue to simmer until it erupts and nails Jesus to the cross. We see the crowds growing and growing. We see people throughout the region seeking healings and miracles from Jesus. But we also see them start to miss the big picture. They recognize the abilities of Jesus, but fail to see Jesus' absolute authority in any real divine way. Then we see this growing band of followers, these select disciples of Jesus. They respond to Jesus' call, drop everything, and follow him. Eventually, they will all be either ostracized or martyred for him. In Matthew 10, we get this pivot from the actions of Jesus specifically to the actions he calls his followers towards. These last three verses in chapter 9 and the entirety of chapter 10 are directed at those who call themselves disciples of Jesus. Jesus will have instructions for his followers, but is also very clear that following him is not a life of luxury and comfort. It's not the first time or the last time he asks something of his disciples, while at the same time putting a disclaimer on the request. As a Christian, me following Jesus absolutely is directly tied to the absolute authority of Jesus. If I don't believe any of the claims he makes about himself, or if I think I'm good enough on my own, then I am going to run into conflict with him when I read the Bible. If I think Jesus is just a dude who existed historically, whose historical movement maybe draws my attention, or who I think is just a really good moral teacher, well, then I recognize he has some skills, some abilities, but I still fall short of recognizing his authority. But, but, if I read these chapters and see that Jesus is who he says he is, with absolute authority over life, death, and the forgiveness of sins, then I can listen to his call and his warnings without fear of this world because I can trust in the promise of his rewards. We made it all the way up to chapter 9 verse 35 last time, where Jesus went about all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. It leads us to the last three verses of Matthew 9, which say, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were harassed and scattered, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, 
The harvest indeed is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. 9.36 sees Jesus describe the multitudes throughout Israel as being like sheep without a shepherd, a sentiment Jesus echoes in verse 10 or chapter 10 verse 6 when he commands the disciples to rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The fact that Jesus calls the Israelites lost sheep without a shepherd would have been a big blow to the pride of the Pharisees who thought of themselves as their leaders. But this idea that the nation of Israel were sheep in need of a shepherd is not unique to the New Testament. In Numbers 27, Moses asks God to provide a successor over the Israelites so that the congregation of the Lord would not be as a sheep which has no shepherd. Second Chronicles 18.16 says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. The Lord also speaks through the prophet Ezekiel about how the Israelites suffered because they didn't have a good prophet over them. In chapter 38, he says, They were scattered because there was no shepherd, before promising to set up one shepherd over them, the good shepherd. We also see in chapter 9, verse 36, that Jesus had compassion and a desire to bring back the scattered Israelites who had strayed from God. It's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament as well. Jesus then closes out the chapter with a call to prayer that the Lord would send out laborers into his harvest. It turns out in the next chapter that at least the first batch of those laborers will be the disciples themselves, as Jesus commissions them with his authority for healing others and proclaiming to the Israelites that the kingdom is at hand. I think it's important to note that estimates put the number of towns in the region around 150 to 250, with a population in the millions. Like when we think about the landscape of the area around Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee, we probably think this really, really rural, couple scattered homes here or there kind of deal. But it accumulated to a very large number of people. Jesus' heart is breaking for all of these people. And just the sheer number should underline the significance of Jesus' call to prayer. Millions of people in that region alone needed to hear the message of him. Here, Jesus is specifically speaking to his disciples about the Israelite people. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out that at the end of Matthew, he calls all of his followers to have our hearts break for all those throughout the world who haven't heard the message of the kingdom and are in need of a saving grace that the gospel proclaims. If Jesus felt compassion for the suffering of a few million then, what should we feel today for the multitudes of lost people in our cities and towns, the billions of shepherdless people around our globe? Matthew 9.38 says, Pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. In Matthew chapter 10, we see a parallel between the 12 disciples and the 12 historical tribes of Israel. Charles Corliss says that Jesus appoints 12 disciples to call the lost sheep of the house of Israel to repentance. Then he continues that Jesus regards the disciples as the reconstituted Israel, a new Israel. This ends up being important to the theme from Matthew of Jesus as the new and greater Moses. Numbers 1 sees God commission Moses and members of each of the 12 tribes to perform a census. 
The listing of these men in Numbers 1-5 echoes Jesus' listing of his disciples in Matthew 10-2. Numbers 1-5 starts, These are the names of the men who shall stand with you. Matthew 10-2 starts, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. Jesus commissions this group to go throughout the Israelite nation. He says that they will eventually be brought before Gentiles, probably talking about the time after his death and resurrection, and that then they should still speak the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit to give them words. But at this point, however, Jesus' focus is to call the Israelites back toward God, which is the same call echoed by Moses and the great prophets of Israel. The disciples are called in verse 7 to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase should sound very familiar to us. In Matthew 3, preparing the way for the Messiah, John the Baptist proclaims to the nation of Israel, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, we see the Messiah himself echo this when Jesus proclaims to the Israelites, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now in Matthew 10, we see Jesus commissioning his disciples to carry the same message to the Israelites as well. In verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells his disciples not to acquire anything new for their journey, but to go forth, delivering the message he gives and performing the actions he's given them authority to perform. He warns them, however, that not everyone would receive this message with welcome arms. When they come across these towns that aren't receptive to the message, they are called not to get bogged down, but to shake the dust off their feet and move on to the next town. In verse 15, Jesus warns, Most certainly I tell you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out from the face of the earth. Yet Jesus says that the judgment upon Israelites who don't repent and return would be far worse than even that. Jesus might be clear that the initial ministry of his disciples was to be focused on the Israelite people. But he is also clear that their ministry would not stop there. This good news of salvation and blessing was to eventually be proclaimed to all nations and peoples. This echoes another theme developed in Matthew 1.1, that Jesus the Christ was the son of Abraham, but also so much more than that, a new and greater Abraham. In Genesis 12, Abraham receives a promise from God that one day his family would be a blessing to all nations. Jesus a descendant of Abraham, the fulfillment of that blessing has come on the stage. Matthew 10.16 says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I think often we hear verse 16 and read into the context something that's not there. We think this is Jesus sending the disciples, and by extension us, out into this big bad heathen world full of religious of irreligious atheists who want to devour us. That's not the context here. Jesus is sending the disciples out to the Israelites, out to the religious people. It's them who Jesus continues to talk about in verse 17, saying, For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. It's in the midst of this persecution from their own people that Jesus utters, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Just like previously in the book, Jesus says that people are going to hate his followers for his name's sake. Here he warns that this response is not just going to come from enemies. It could come from countrymen and neighbors. 
from friends and family members. It could even come from people who sit beside you in your place of worship. Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his Lord. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebub, how much more those of his household. Beelzebub literally meant the chief of evil spirits, but it was also used as a name for Satan. If they are willing to call Jesus evil and wicked and hateful names, of course they're going to call his followers these things too. Jesus doesn't call his followers to a comfortable life. No, he says if you are following me, you are going to experience discomfort and suffering. In fact, in other places, Jesus says that if you are experiencing discomfort and suffering for my name's sake, that's actually a sign that you're doing this disciple thing right. How could the disciples stand in the face of this opposition without anxiety and fear in this life? Jesus lays out a few reasons. Jesus says to fear God instead of what man can do. In the ESV translation of verse 1028, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The limits of what man can do or promise to do stop in the realm of this world. But God's promises, they extend to eternity. In verse 22, he tells his disciples that he who endures to the end will be saved. Again, this isn't the first time that we get a promise in perseverance. In Matthew 5, we hear Jesus say, Blessed are you when people reproach you, persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus' followers can stand without fear of the world because Jesus has promised blessings and salvations. He has overcome the world. And nothing the world does to his disciples can stop that because Jesus has authority over everything. We've seen this in the last few chapters. Jesus has all authority. And if he has all authority, then believers can find rest in the faithfulness of his eternal promises, in the rest that Jesus has overcome the world. Everyone, therefore, who confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... Him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Verses 32 and 33 are a cry from Jesus for his followers to outwardly profess their faith in him above all and before all. Now, this does not mean that if you miss an evangelistic opportunity that you're doomed and Jesus is going to deny you before God the Father. I mean, we even see Peter, one of the disciples, mess this up at a crucial moment. But if you never outwardly profess your faith, and you always deny who Jesus is, then how can you really be a follower of Christ? If someone really believes Jesus is who he claims to be, then they couldn't possibly live a lifestyle constantly denying him. Matthew 10 verses 38 through 39 continues the message of hardship and discomfort that would accompany being a follower of Jesus. Specifically, the disciples were called to go around to their own country to their own hometowns, and speak a message that the Jewish leadership thought was blasphemous. It was going to be countercultural. It was going to divide families, and it was going to test loyalties. 
Matthew 10, 35 and 36 are almost identical to what the prophet Micah declares when the Lord is speaking through him about a future discontent of the nation of Israel that would come around about the time of the Messiah. In Micah 7, 6, he says, For the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. But the prophet goes on to speak of resilience, steadfastness, and trust in the very next verse. In Micah 7, 7, he says, But as for me, I will look to Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Jesus isn't talking about hating family members. He's speaking about priorities. Jesus has absolute authority, so he should demand his followers absolute priority. He has to be given the top pedestal, the number one seed. Sometimes in today's culture, we are guilty of this. We crown our parents or our mentors or our neighborhood or our cultural heritage or our political parties at the expense of Jesus. There is only one king we should crown in glory. To place it upon the head of something else is to reject crowning Jesus your Lord and Savior. Matthew 10, 37-39 say, He who loves father more than mother is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. He who doesn't take his cross and follow after me isn't worthy of me. He who seeks his own life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus concludes the chapter by pivoting from the messengers to those who receive the messengers he sends. Verse 40 and the end of verse 41 are not saying that if you're nice to a Christian, you're going to heaven. These verses make it clear that acceptance of Jesus himself was the foundation for accepting Jesus' disciples during this mission trip. I think Blumberg articulates it well. He says, those who receive his followers because they accept what his followers stand for will in turn be received by God. Matthew 40 and the end of verse 41 say, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. This chapter has been called by some Jesus' Sermon on Mission because it is provided exclusively around the context of what he commissioned his followers to do. He provides instructions on how to carry out their life on mission while also warning them of the sometimes uncomfortable reality of being a follower of Jesus in a fallen world. We read throughout the rest of Matthew that the call to his disciples here is the same call to us today. In Matthew 24, we hear, This good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world for a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And in what has been termed the Great Commission, Matthew 28:19, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But the Great Commission has an introduction and a signature. In, in full, Jesus proclaims, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Just as we've seen in these chapters, Jesus has been given all authority. 
He is worth proclaiming and persevering for. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He is a promise keeper, and he has promised to always be with those who follow him. Next episode, we'll start chapter 11. Please follow us on the From Heaven to Eternity Facebook group to keep up to date on the latest podcasts, videos, and blog posts we have. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.